ago, a group of friends met up for dinner. These guys were pretty tight. They'd been best friends for a long, long time. Ups and downs, they'd been through it all. They'd been through it all together. But they knew that this night, this was going to be the last night they'd actually all be able to come together as a group for a very long time. They're about to part ways. So there's something in the air of good memories of the years they'd had together. And also something in the air of sadness of moving on. Now early on in this evening, a job came up. Something needed doing. It wasn't the most fun job. It was a bit mundane. It's actually a little bit grim. And no one wanted to do it. Because to be the guy that stepped forward and said, yeah, yeah, I'll take this on. I'll do the job. Would be saying, look, after three years of hanging out together, I'm the member of this group who ranks lowest. I'm at the bottom of the pile. I'm the guy that does all the rubbish jobs. And no one wanted to be that guy. Especially not on a night like this. Well, one of these friends, he was a leader within the group. If you think kind of John Travolta in Greece, or Frank Sinatra in the Rat Pack, or the brain in Pinky and the Brain, <laughs> that was this guy. He was the leader of the pack. And on seeing his friends bickering, squabbling, and aspiring for status, to get ahead at the expense of each other, this man stepped forward. And now maybe you'd expect him to give an inspiring speech, or to settle it once and for all by saying, you, you're the lowest in the group, you can do it. But that's not what he did. Instead, Jesus, for that's who this leader was, he took the task upon himself. He donned the garments of a servant. Then he got down on the floor to wash the sweat and the dust and the grime off the feet of each of his friends in turn. A few months ago, I was at Old Street underground station waiting for a tube. It was a bit busy, but not totally rammed. So like, if you think of the platform, probably about every 10 metres someone was standing. So there's loads of space. So I just went on, found a bit of space, stood there to wait for the train. Then this man walked on. This older guy. And he walked, and he stood near me. Not like two metres away even, but near me. <laughs> he was right in my space. Well, I did the right thing, and I kind of shuffled a couple of half steps. I mean, I, I didn't want to move like loads, because that would just seem a, a little bit like I was just giving in. But I, I didn't want him right in my space, so I moved a little bit. And, and the whole personal space balance, it was restored. I was happy. And then the tube came. And the tube, again, was a little bit busy, but not loads. So there weren't any free seats, but the standing up bits between the rows of seats, there, there was plenty of space there. Like, it's in one of the standing up sections. There were only two other people standing in there. So that was fine. I got on, and, and there was plenty of space there. I uh, found a place to read my book, and I was quite happy until this man gets on the tube. And again, he stands right next to me. What's he doing? So I'm like, okay, well, I'll just manoeuvre out of the way a bit. And he follows me round into my space. So... <laughs> That's three times he's done this now. Actually, in my space, I couldn't hack it anymore. Now, honestly, I don't actually think he was doing it on purpose, but it was winding me up a lot. So here's what I should have done, okay? I should have let it slide, moved again, or even walked right down to the next standing bit where he was nowhere near me. But I didn't do that. I decided to pull out one of those tube manoeuvres that everyone has of the elbow shield, okay? <laughs> So I'm holding the bar up there in such a way that my elbow is next to his back. 
Now, I'm not going to press my elbow into his back, because that's mean, okay? But I am going to make sure that if he wants to come into my space anymore, he's got an elbow in his back. <laughs> that's what I did. That's, that's quite shameful, but that's what I did, because there was a principle to stand for. So we spent the entire journey, both me and him, in discomfort with a back and an elbow pressed against each other because neither of us were willing to back down and move into that ample free space all around us. Just none of us would do it. Now, I've just told you two stories. The point I want to make to you by making these two stories is that my saviour is a lot more humble than me, which is ridiculous because he's the eternal son of God. He's worshipped by angels. He lived a perfect life as the spirit-filled man. He performed signs and wonders, the likes of which you can't even start to imagine. His teaching still has penetrating power even today. And yet he was willing to take the position as servant of all. Whereas I'm a sinner. I'm an enemy of God. A cosmic traitor who deserves to be snubbed out just like that. My life is but a vapour. And actually the only hope I've got in all of eternity rests on what I'm given for free by the mercy of someone else. Yet I act proud and won't back down when there's a man standing next to me on the tube. There's something totally out of sync here. It's just wrong. At Revelation Church, for for the rest of this year, God willing, we're going to be focusing our attention on the Sermon on the Mount. There's a sermon that Jesus preached. He did it to his followers, but he was in earshot of the religious establishment establishment of the day. Okay, so in part, it's a critique of their religion. But more than that, it's kind of a setting forth of what the life is like of somebody who is born again. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we're going to be for a long time, God willing. In the summer of 2004, the Sermon on the Mount ruined my life. (laughs) About two years earlier, I'd come to know Jesus. So I'd come to understand the gospel it was only the grace of God for me that I could know him. It was only because Jesus died on my behalf I could have a relationship with my Father in heaven. I got that. And I wanted my life to start to correspond with what I believed. So I started asking people around me, how can I live as a Christian well? So they'd tell me things. So they'd say, well, you could start reading the Bible. That would help. So I did. I read the whole thing in six months. Then I read it again in the next six months and set that pattern in my life. And they said, well, you can tell other people. So, so I did. I told loads of people about Jesus. They said, well, you can get praying. Check. I did it. You can stop drinking. Check. I did it. Stop swearing. Check. I did it. Stop looking at porn. I did it. Read Christian books. I did it. I nailed systematic theology by Grudem in like a year with loads of other books. I, I, I read all that stuff. Fast. Get serving at church. I did it. I was brilliant at living the Christian life at the start of the summer of 2004. I was nailing it. I was amazing. (laughs) By the end of the summer of 2004, I was rubbish at being a Christian. And the reason was, I'd taken that summer with the Sermon on the Mount. I had a long summer holiday. I'd just finished uni. The the job that I was going to move to, I didn't start until September. So I decided, right, I'm going to hang out in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read some of it each day, meditate on it, pray on it. Uh, I, I read a sermon on it. Uh, by Martin Lloyd-Jones each day as well. He, he wrote an excellent book on it, well worth 
really, they just messed everything up for me. Because here's the problem. Everyone else, when they were saying, here's how you live the Christian life, they were telling me stuff that was doable. They were saying, well, if you did this, and they broke it down into a small, easily applicable chunk, which seems really sensible. And someone should have told Jesus to do the same thing. Because when he started telling me how to live the Christian life, here in the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't do that. He started telling me stuff I couldn't do. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, I can't just say, all right, well, cool, poor in spirit. I'll become poor in spirit then. Uh, and go and meet with my friends and say, guess what, I'm poor in spirit now. Because they'd say, guess what, no, you're not, you've just proved it. The more I tried to do what was in the Sermon on the Mount, the more I realized that I couldn't do it. It totally wrecked everything. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over my sin, but I kind of liked my sin. I enjoyed it. And even when I gave it up, gave it up I enjoyed I enjoyed kind of the feeling of, well, I, I want to do it, but I'm sacrificing something I really, really want. But to be gutted about it, to be broken about it, I just couldn't make that happen. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount slapped me in the face with the truth that the Christian life is something I am not capable of living. I just can't manage it. I wonder, have you understood this as well? Do you know that living for Jesus is something that you just can't do by yourself? You just can't step forward and say, okay, well, this is the list. I can do all of those things. Mm -mm. Jesus puts the bar way higher. In his teaching, he sets it way more than any of us could ever do way more than any of us could ever aspire to. Make sure, if you're responsible for discipling somebody else, make sure you're not just telling them to do things that they can do. Because otherwise, that would be a disaster. If you're just saying, oh, do this, do this, do this, and it's always stuff they can do, they'll end up thinking they can do it, and they'll be self-reliant. Show them what Jesus says a follower of his looks like. Show them things that they just can't do. Because what that will do to them, is what it did for me. It won't make them give up. It will make them cry out and say, God, I can't do this. Help me. Which is a brilliant place to be. It will take people to the place where they say, God, I need your Holy Spirit. Because without your Holy Spirit, I've got no chance of any of this ever being what my life looks like. And that's a great place to be, crying out for the Holy Spirit to fill us. This sermon taught me that truth. It wrecked my life. For the better. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is deliberately cutting against the fabric of human nature. There's a way that all of us are wired that's precisely the opposite of what Jesus says here. This isn't the way we're wired, it's not how we're born. What we need then is to be rewired. What we need is to be born again. Let me just read for you what Jesus said at the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. These are blessings that he pronounces. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This stuff does not come naturally to me. I'm sure it doesn't come naturally to you either. Being poor in spirit, that's not 
my inclination. Being self-righteous, that's my inclination. Do you remember Steph was saying, the poor in spirit man is the one who stands before God and beats his breast saying, God, I need your mercy. I need your mercy. That's not how I'm naturally wired. Mourning over sin, that's not my inclination. I tend to be flippant about sin. That's how my inclination is wired. I tend to crack jokes about things that break God's heart. And meekness, that's not my natural inclination either, but being proud, self-assertive, and ridiculous is what comes naturally to me. That's our focus this week. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And as I was thinking to prepare this, the things that kept coming to mind over and over again were examples of how I'm not very meek. It just kept coming to me. So I I thought there might be some value in just kind of listing off a few examples of why I'm not very meek by telling stories from my life. Now, what I want to do with this, first of all, help you realise that I'm a bit ridiculous, but secondly, and more importantly, help you realise that you're a bit ridiculous too, okay? Because as I'm telling these stories about me, they should prompt thoughts in your own mind about, oh, well, I once did this. It wasn't quite the same, but the same dynamics were going on here and the same dynamics going on there. I want you to see that none of us are meek. So uh, a story when I was about 10 years old, primary school, final year, and we got taken away to this place called Ned Nook, and it was like a little holiday centre. We got to stay in dormitories and play pool and like watch videos and go swimming and all that kind of stuff. And there was an incident one evening where um, some of the lads were playing on the pool table and one of the guy ended up getting his teeth smashed as a result of this game of pool. And obviously that isn't great. So, so the teacher said, look, we, we need to get to the bottom of what happened here. Uh, if you saw it, uh, just let us know and we'll have a word with you. So a few of the more popular boys in the year had seen it. They, they said, yeah, yeah, we saw it. So I was like, yeah, I saw it as well. Now, I had no idea what's going on. I wasn't even there. <laughs> but because the popular boys had said they'd seen it, I thought, well... If I didn't see it, then they'll obviously think I'm an idiot, so I'd best have seen it. Um, so I made up this story about someone was like slamming balls against the cushion, someone else put a cue down and it hit the cue and bounced into his mouth. I don't know, it might have happened. <laughs> I don't know. Another example, okay, I was 14 years old, and a friend of mine uh, was staying over for the night, and he wet the bed, okay? And I was saying to mum the next day, oh, this is brilliant, because I can go into school tomorrow, and I can tell everyone that he wet the bed. Because I thought that if I did that, I'd look really good, because he looked really bad. I thought if I pushed him down, I'd look good. Another story, a few years ago, I saw this, what I thought, but I've been informed that I was wrong about, amazing white leather jacket. For... And I thought, you know what, if I buy this, everyone will think I'm brilliant. <laughs> so I spent a lot of money on a ridiculous white leather jacket. <laughs> True story. <laughs> I remember the first time I asked a girl out, she said no. So some people, oh, did you really ask her out? I was like, well, yeah, yeah, but only as friends. I wanted people to think that I wasn't the guy who just got rejected. When, when I was in the Cubs, we played a lads v dads football match. I scored three goals. I then ran the entire length of the pitch going, hat-trick, 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 hat-trick. It's ridiculous. Why did I do that? So I want everyone to think I was good at football. I'm not good at football. Like a while ago, I was chatting with someone uh, who goes to a different church, and I felt it necessary to, to big up Rev, not just to tell them kind of 
a bit of facts about us, but to tell them why we are the best church around. We're not the best church around. We're just a bunch of sinful people who then Jesus has saved and brought together as his community. Uh, and we're trying to live for him. But, but why in the world did I do that? Because I wanted them to think good of us. I missed the school bus once. Um, I, I kind of ran up the hill trying to get it. And I, got to, and I just missed it. And when I got to school, everyone was like, oh, you should have gone the other way. If you'd have gone the other way, you'd have caught the bus. So I thought, right, I'm going to learn from that. And then when I got home and was telling mum why I hadn't got the bus, I was like, yeah, yeah, I went this other way, right? And I still didn't get it. And mum was like, yeah, yeah, but if you'd have gone the, the original way, you definitely would have. But I'd lied to try and make her think I wasn't an idiot. What was I doing there? Or like when I was working in a shop, like I'd worked the summer. I was like the best employee in terms of like I was getting all the hours and all the promotions. Then I went away to uni. And I came back, and one of the others had really done well and was getting all the hours. And I started getting all competitive. And I was like, ah, I didn't know that I was the... What's that about? I wanted to be thought of well. Now, okay, that's a load of ridiculous, embarrassing stories. I mean, I hope my best man's listening. He won't even have to bother writing a speech. But what I want to do in telling you all these stories, I want you to see a pattern, and I want you to see what's at the root of every single one of them, and that is my desire to be thought well of. Every single one comes back to, I want to have a standing or a significance or an importance before people. I want the way they think of me to be a certain way. That's the heart behind it. I'm sure that each one of you in different ways can identify with that same thing. You want to be thought well of by other people. That's what we all want. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Saviour says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. When he says blessed, he means happy. He means well off, in a good position. Things are going really well for you when this is the case. And he says things are going really well for you when they're meek. So who's that then? Who are the meek? Well, rather than just tell you who I think the meek are, I want to share scriptures where it talks about the meek. So the first one we'll look at is Psalm 37. Now Psalm 37 is a song that was for people who were under the cosh from evildoers. They were getting a hard time from people who were wicked. And the song's encouraging them to chill out and trust God. Because although you're having a hard time now, God will judge those who are doing this to you. It says, delight yourself in him and he will grant you your heart's desire. And then take a look from verse 10. Psalm 37, verse 10. He says, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. So the wicked will be judged, and the meek will be the ones who inherit the land. That might sound familiar to you. And it's because this psalm is where Jesus got it from. Jesus wasn't just making it up. It wasn't something new or original, and it shouldn't have been surprising to those who heard it. Yet what was fresh and stunning about it is Jesus had read a promise of God in the Old Testament, and he had the audacity to take God at his word and believe the promise that the meek are blessed because they inherit the earth. So he restated it. He just said, yeah, God said it in the psalm, and it's true. Blessed are the meek. Next time the meek come up, Isaiah 11 from verse 1. It's talking about Jesus, this. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Jesus is filled with the spirit. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or judge disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So it's pairing up the meek with the poor, as people who, when Jesus comes as the spirit-filled judge, he will favour in his judgment. Or then Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19, it's talking about a day when God's blessing will be poured out. It says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Again, the meek, they're ranked alongside the poor, the deaf, and the blind. We're seeing a pattern of what kind of person we're talking about as the meek. And what a promise it is for the meek here. Fresh joy in the Lord. I want a bit of that, don't you? Fresh joy in the Lord. We often talk about the poor here at Revelation, and when we do, we point out that God, the just judge, will judge in favour of the poor. He'll right the wrongs against them. He'll straighten things out in perfect justice, and it's true. And it seems from these scriptures we can say a very similar thing about the meek. God will judge in favour of the meek. He'll bring to justice the wrongs done against them. And you'll find the poor and the meek in disproportionately high numbers amongst the people of God. Again, listen to this scripture, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When we say the meek, we're essentially talking about the insignificant, the overlooked, the bottom of the pile. Blessed are the insignificant, for they shall inherit the earth. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Welcome to the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus is doing. He's overturning everything. Does it ever seem like nobody notices? Then Jesus says you're blessed. Do you ever feel unappreciated? Jesus says, blessed are you. You know, when the pecking order's all racked up, Do you kind of feel like you'd end up somewhere near the bottom? Jesus says, you're blessed. Do you ever have stuff to say and then kind of bite your tongue because you don't think anyone would really care about your opinion? Jesus says, blessed are you. This week, I asked a friend who doesn't know Jesus uh, whether he thought that being meek was a good thing or if it was a bad thing. He said, it's a bad thing. And his reason for saying it is, Well, it's a dog-eat-dog world. If you're meek, then what you'll find happening is people will clamber all over you. Now, that's true. What he said is true. If you're meek, people will clamber all over you. And Jesus said, blessed are you 
when that happens. You see, God, the righteous judge, he will bring forth justice for you. He's looking on. He sees every time you're snub. He notices every foot in your face, every elbow in your chest, every bit of clambering all over you. He notices all of it. He executes judgment for you in all of it. So blessed are you. If God didn't do that, then my friend would be right. Forget being meek. Do all you can to get ahead. But God does notice. So in meekness, trust God to vindicate you. Trust him to set things to right. It's important when we talk about meekness we, that we're really clear what we mean. There are two mistakes we can make. Some people go in and just hear the word meek and assume that they already know what it means and end up with something far different from what the Bible means. And some people say, well, okay, I need to nuance this. So they put nuance upon nuance upon nuance and they end up with it not actually meaning anything at all. We want to avoid both. We want to uh, really affirm what it says but make sure we're not affirming anything that it doesn't say. First thing um, to say, meekness is not necessarily the same thing as weakness, okay? Meekness is not the same thing as weakness, okay? It can be very, very strong to take the lowest position. Think of Jesus. He was strong and he was powerful, yet he voluntarily submitted himself to be servant of all. That's strength, but that's meekness. Second, meekness does not mean lack of conviction, Okay, so uh, I was having a conversation um, the other day, uh, and one of the other people in the conversation was Muslim. And someone said, Tom, do you, would you say that you two like, are saying totally different things? Now, if I'd have been doing like, a false meekness, I could have been like, well, I, I wouldn't want to kind of put my view over somebody else's, so uh, I don't know, I guess each to their own. That's not meekness, that's cowardice. When it comes to truth, when it comes to what God said, we're crystal clear. We take God at his word. We don't put God's word in the lowest position. We put ourselves in the lowest position. That's meekness, okay? Meekness doesn't mean letting things go. So it's not that something terrible just happened to me, and because I'm meek, oh, well, I'll just let it go. It means you give it to God. Okay, justice will be done, and you trust God with that. Meekness does not mean never saying something. So, for example, if like a utility company are pushing you around and doing really bad stuff, um, meekness wouldn't be saying, oh, well, I can't phone them and let them know there's an issue here because I, I want to be meek. No, it means you don't phone them angrily, shouting, asserting your importance. You say, look, this isn't on. You do so with patience, no spirit of retaliation, no spirit of anger, no wounded pride in that. Okay, but you can speak up. Meekness does mean being willing to stand up and assert the rights of other people, maybe in a way that you wouldn't do your own. So if someone else is getting beaten down, stand up firmly and fight it. Meekness, it means the absence of defensiveness in your conversation. It means being willing to listen, to learn and be teachable. It's a recognition you don't know it all. Also, meekness is a progressive thing. So earlier on when I was telling, when I was telling you stories, most of those stories happened before I knew Jesus. But some of them are more recent. That was deliberate. Because it's not like a golden bullet the moment you become a Christian. You're perfectly the most humble person. It's a lifelong process of putting off the old and putting on the new. It's a battle that by the grace of God, each day ground's been taken. But until Jesus returns or I'm taken to glory, it's a battle I will have to fight. 
Nobody but Jesus would have ever thought to say, blessed are the meek. But he did, and it's incredibly, incredibly beautiful. Now, meekness as well isn't exactly a parallel to insignificance. It's not that every single person who positionally is low down on an organisational chart is meek. Because sometimes you get someone who's low, but actually they're bitter about it. And they think, no, 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 I deserve more than this. I'm more important than this. That's not meekness, even if in their position they're low. That isn't what being meek is. By contrast, you could get someone who happens to have everybody gravitate to them. They gather a crowd, and everyone respects them, and yet they're very humble, and they're very meek, and they're not at all into winning fans and admiration. I mean, Jesus is an example of this. There are billions of people who gravitate to him and who say he's amazing, and yet he didn't come to earth just to set up a fan club. No, he's meek. It's a dynamic of the heart at work. It's how you think of yourself in regard to other people. Do you remember the story in the Bible uh, of the big wedding party and a couple of guys are invited and the first one walks in and he's like, there's a spare chair, front row. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to be at the head of the table. And then someone who actually is running the show says, oh, mate, that's someone else's chair. Kicks him out and he has to walk all the way to the back. Or you get the other guy who, he comes in and he just sits right up on the balcony back row where he thinks no one's going to see him. He's like, yeah, this will do. And someone says, oi, what are you doing back there? Come on, get down here. We want you at the front. It's how you see yourself in regards to other people. And remember as well that we've been saying that these Beatitudes, this first part of the Sermon on the Mount, um, it, it's a picture of how somebody is converted. And then the rest of the sermon it's kind of the, the picture of what the converted life looks like. So I want you to see what conversion is, okay? Firstly, uh, it's something that God does. And secondly, it's something that we do as well. The, the, two terms, the two come together. So you're dead, okay? Relationally, spiritually, you're dead. And you're on death row in the, within the next hundred years or so, maybe sooner. That's it. Your life finishes. And that's because of sin. We're all under a death sentence. However, God loves you. God does not desire that you perish. The Bible's crystal clear on that. If you choose to stay in your sin, if you choose to continue to reject God and rebel against him, your course is clear. But God, he desires you to turn off that sinful course. So he acted. He did something. He sent his son to this earth. And his son, Jesus Christ, lived an absolutely perfect life, which we didn't do. Then at the end of it, he died a death on a cross, which is curious because he, unlike us, was never, never under a death sentence because he never sinned. So in terms of God, he never had Jesus under a death sentence, but Jesus died. Why? That was our death sentence. He died in our place. The judgment on him as he died was the judgment that belongs to us. Now, conversion, that's when the Spirit of God comes and opens up our eyes and our minds so we get it. And so we say, right, okay, well, I'm not going to live for sin anymore. I'm going to live for Jesus because he died for me. Conversion's when the Holy Spirit means you get it. So God's done something in you. You start to see things differently. 
You start to be poor in spirit. Say, no, no, I have nothing of my own to put as my righteousness. I'm relying on God. You start to mourn over your sin rather than celebrate it. You start to not take the highest position, but be willing to take the lowest position in meekness. That's conversion. That's how it works. There's an offer open to you today. There's an offer open. I don't know what you've done in the past. And to be honest, it doesn't really make any difference. Jesus said, look, are you weary or are you burdened? Then come to me. My arms are open for you. Come to me. He came to save sinners like me and like you. He came to save proud people like me and like you. There's an offer open. There's an offer open for you. So I'm going to pray now that God will give some of you the desire to know Jesus for the first time. Holy Spirit, please do this. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes to your Son. Please cause us to to desire him and to want him, Lord. Let us be converted so we're not living to sin anymore, but we're living to Jesus. Please, Lord, please do this in us. Please do it. Please do it. If that's you, okay, if you know that God's just answered that prayer, or if you know that sometime today, like in what's gone already of the service, or in what's to come of the service, God is opening your eyes. So you want to live for Jesus. It'd be great to get to know you. It'd be great to pray with you and for you. Grab me as we're singing or after the service because I would love to meet you. To end the preach with, I just want to take a few minutes on the promise that goes with the blessing. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's the promise. We'll inherit the earth. This promise is not about now. Some of the promises in the Beatitudes are, at least in part, about now. The first two are. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, at least in part, that's true now. Comfort, at least in part, that's true now. Inheriting the earth, that's a future promise. Here's what the Bible says about the future. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but we know he will. When he does, there will be a judgment day. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. He'll separate his own people from those who aren't his. Those who've had our sins totally covered by Jesus by his blood, by trusting in him, will go with him to be in the renewed creation. Those who haven't, those who don't know him, who continue to reject him, will be judged in hell. He will renew this whole earth. The earth is broken. God made it good, but sin has entered and it's kind of outworking bad stuff now. But starting in the resurrection, he began a new creation. We're seeing it in our lives if we know him. We see it when we see God miraculously heal people and when we see God miraculously provide. But on that day, it will be there in fullness. The earth and the heavens will be completely renewed. And then Jesus says here, on that day, the meek will inherit the whole earth. If you're one of these meek people, one of these converted people who are happy to see yourself at the bottom of the pile, you will inherit the whole earth. So when somebody cuts in front of you in the queue, let them. The whole earth's going to belong to you for billions and billions of years. It's okay to be last in line. Blessed are the meek. When you're fighting to get ahead, be willing to be viewed last. The whole thing will be yours. Blessed are the meek. 
So as a church that's grown to this size, there are really two different paths we could take from here. We could do the thing where we talk ourselves up, where we're shouting to everybody about how Revelation is the most impressive church in the world. You should join us because we're so cool. (laughs) Or we can humbly get on with what Jesus has called us to. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek. I've got option two. As an individual 21st century Londoner, there are two ways you can go. You can join the clamour with everybody else to get known, recognised and respected. Or you can humbly and gently do what the Holy Spirit leads you in service of God and other people. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. I've got option two. After he said, blessed are the meek, later on in this sermon, Jesus said this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and who does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. It did not fall. It had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So you've heard what Jesus said. So now you need to cry out to God that his spirit will help you do this. Because you won't be able to do it on your own, but cry out to God that the Holy Spirit will help you to build your life on these words.